0: We have just been singing for the last 40 minutes or so. We've been singing together as a community. And specifically, we haven't just been singing songs like sort of Baby Shark or uh, something else. We've been singing things about faith. We've been articulating specific aspects of uh, spiritual truths. I wonder how it went for you. I wonder how you feel about the 40 minutes we spent singing each Sunday. I wonder how did you do? Was it something that was good for you? Or is it something you try and avoid? I wonder, as we sang the lyrics... Did each subsequent lyric lead you further into God's presence so that you became more and more immersed in his praise? So you needed the words less and less because you are encountering the face of God. Or perhaps you dabbled on the edges. You dipped your toes in the worship. Every now and again you would try and enter into the song and you were mildly impressed by a nice feeling, perhaps, a little tingle down the spine, a sense of security or joy. And you didn't want to go too deep, but you sort of dabbled in it. Every now and again, you would look around at what the children's doing, what the weather was like outside, if you had any sort of Facebook or Twitter updates, and then you would come back to the worship, feel nice, and then come out again. Or worse still, did you feel a stranger? Was this... An incredibly foreign experience for you. Were the songs boring? Were they irrelevant? Did you not understand the words in them? Did you find them confusing? Those are the seem uh, three obvious categories for people when they sing worship. It is very obvious if you are at the front that we have all three categories in this place. We have people that are lost in worship. We have people that are half-heartedly committed. Some they sort of dip their toe in and out. And we have some that are utterly bemused that they're in this room altogether together and wonder what on earth the other people are on. The most important thing when we sing together is not whether we have one live musician a whole bunch of live musicians or some very Hollywood style recorded musicians that have spent an absolute fortune um, on it. It's not whether we have sophisticated lyrics with lots and lots of long words or where we repeat the same stanza again and again. The most important thing when we worship is what's going on in our heads. It's what's going on in your mind as you worship. You can worship well to an old song or a new song equally well. It depends what's going on in your mind. It depends on the dialogue you're having about God. What are you thinking about when you praise God? Are you just enjoying the music or are you understanding that this uh, this Time and space is supposed to be more than a karaoke session. The stranger to God looks around confused as people close their eyes and lift their hands and seem to uh, enjoy the music in a way they've not seen before. The immature believer, the early starter, they only join in with the songs that they like or the ones with the beat that they can join in with. And at best, inside their heads, they are thinking, oh yeah, God, you allowed my car to pass its MOT, or my children um, aren't sick, or I've still got a job. We remember our temporal blessings that God has lavished on us. And we can go in and out. And what happens is, if we've had a bad week, worship becomes very difficult. And if we've had a good week, perhaps we can join in with a few more songs. New songs, hard songs, physical sickness, distraction, and troubles, especially money troubles... Quickly close down the immature believer because they can't handle worship when stuff is going on in their lives and that crowds out God. They can't handle enjoying God's presence if things are rubbish elsewhere. So, how do we move towards maturity? You may not have asked that question, but it's a question I'm asking for you. Uh, The most complete book of sort of Christian theology in the New Testament is a book called Romans. And it was uh, a book written by the Apostle Paul to Christians he'd never met. And he was just explaining all the things that uh, he thought uh, that he knew about God and he knew about God's plan for salvation. And he's talking about a particular subject. And then in the middle of this writing... He erupts into what theologians call a the doxology, which is essentially a short moment of praise. And if you've got a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 11. Um, in this day and age with phones and internet, you've got no excuse not being able to read the words along with me and uh, making sure that I'm not making up as I go along. So it says this in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. And I want you to really listen to what he has to say. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I wonder how many of us were exclaiming, oh, and came up with that thought when we were praising God. It's a little bit different to, Lord, I thank you that nasty, uh, pussy wound on my knee had healed up you know it's an advancement wow look at your wisdom and knowledge god and he goes on how unsearchable his judgments we have got to a different level of understanding of god in here in this words of paul his past beyond tracing out we sang earlier about boxing God in Paul is not boxing God in he is allowing God and his majesty to ring out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor how many of us have said to God are uh, you doing things wrong I'd like you to listen to me and Paul was going I don't do that anymore I know that what God decides is good who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. These are some incredible words that you really have to spend some time in. And if you notice, that he doesn't thank God that he was able to pay his rent or that his child benefit came in or that um, any other temporal issue came right for him that week. This seasoned, deep Christian does not recount all the nice things that have happened to him. He doesn't recite God's promises. Oh, you know, you're going to make me uh, prosperous in the future and uh, um, you know what, you're going to look after me. He doesn't list his prayer requests. You know, God, I've got all these things that I need you to achieve um, and then I'll be in a place of worship. Paul doesn't list any of these things. In this doxology, Paul... Is utterly and wonderfully engrossed in the nature of God Himself. He gazes at God Almighty and he uses the poor, frail, inadequate words to describe what he sees. God, your wisdom and knowledge, they are perfect. Your ways, I don't understand them, but they are beautiful. No one can give to you that you have not already given to them in the first place. And he presses in to God's eternal character, not just the things that happen, but something beautiful and wonderful. Friends, to see things like Paul, yes, it changes our worship. It changes Sunday morning into something a lot more exciting and pleasant and joyful and helpful than a sing-along. But it also changes everything else. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3. It's a very famous moment. Um, and it says this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. If you've seen Prince of Egypt, um, you'll have seen an animated version of that. Um, and even that gives me a bit of a, a tingle down the spine. And it says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Death, Jethro, his father-in-law. This guy was a murderer and he was a fugitive from justice. He's not the first person that you would make a pastor or even a member of the worship team or even anyone involved in church life at all. He was a murderer, murderer and a fugitive and someone that you'd be like, yeah, perhaps um, we'll sideline you there. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. This is not unusual. Uh, uh, Foliage is set alight every now and again, all the time, um, especially in dry places. So seeing a, a bush burning would not have been a remarkable thing. Moses saw, however, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not Burn up. So Moses comes to God as a tourist, have a little look, and uh, take a selfie with this remarkable bush. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to the bush, um, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to the bush, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, "Here I am." Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. We find God takes a very ordinary sight of a bush burning and makes it extraordinary and Moses comes near to this bush and God we hear draws near to Moses and the result is that we have miraculous flames and we have special conditions for this place if God is in this bush then you treat the bush differently it is not because the bush was particularly impressive. It is not because um, it was particularly ornate or glamorous. It was just a bush. But God was there. And so he had to treat it differently. And the conditions for this holy ground was bare feet. And in this time and space, God reveals something of his holiness. The ground is holy because God is holy. Not because the bush is holy. And so God is holy and the ground is holy and Moses has to come barefoot. And this territory becomes transformed. And then the question is, so what does holiness mean? Well, the, the, um, the Hebrew word that um, is being used means separate. I don't know what you think of the word holy but uh, the Hebrew means uh, the Hebrew word means separate or cut off or different or distinct. And we have this impression that this ground is cut off and different from all the other ground because God is there. And God is holy because he is different from everything else you can experience. God is not the same as his creation. God is not Um, the same as things that you experience um, in your lives. He is greater and higher and more majestic. There is not the same glory in a flower as in God because God is holy. There is this wonderful uh, moment near the beginning of the book of Isaiah where Isaiah gets this heavenly vision and he's kind of in the throne room of God, and uh, there are these creatures, and they are flying round uh, God's throne room. And, and it's very hard for, for our minds to wrap our, uh, um, wrap our minds' eye about exactly what's going on. But these strange heavenly creatures called seraphs, they are going around God, and what are they saying? They are not saying... Oh, wondrous God who did this or did that. They are saying, God, you are holy. You are holy. You are holy. This is a particular characteristic or aspect of God that is incredibly important. It is perfect bliss to be caught up in God's utter superiority, to join with Paul and talk about his unsearchable knowledge And wisdom, to be caught up in God's supremacy and superiority over everything else. And when you catch a glimpse of this, you become suddenly preoccupied with something more marvellous than you've ever encountered in creation, because God is cut off from creation in that he is different to it. There is nothing on earth quite like that experience of God, because God is not like anything you have encountered before. I was uh, searching round for another uh, way of illustrating this point and I started to have books um, that came up to my waist of things that I wanted to read out and then I was like you know what, people have got sort of dinners to get to so um, uh, the African Augustine um, has made it to the top in this one. This is a guy who was a Uh, sinner extraordinaire. He had a a sort of a a mistress and he went round and uh, looked at every religion and philosophy that he could. He was definitely a searcher for truth and a searcher for experience. And he writes this in his Confessions, which detail what's going on in his mind. And he says this, most high, utterly good, utterly powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful, most just, Deeply hidden, yet most intimately present, perfection of both beauty and strength, stable and incomprehensible, immutable and yet changing all things, never new, never old, making new and leading the proud to be old without their judgment. Then he has a quote from Job, which uh, I'm going to move on from. Always active, always in repose, gathering to yourself but not in need, supporting and filling, protecting and creating, nurturing and bringing to maturity, searching out. Even though to you nothing is lacking, you love without burning. You are jealous in a way that is free of anxiety. You are wrathful yet remain tranquil. You will, uh, you will a change without any change in your design. you recover what you find yet never have lost never in any need yet you rejoice in your gains you are never avarice but you require interest we pay you more than you require so as to make you our debtor yet who has anything which does not belong to you you pay off debts though owing nothing to anyone you cancel debts and incur no loss and this is the bit i like but in these words what have i said my god my life, my holy sweetness. I wonder how many of you were thinking those words in worship. My God, my life, my holy sweetness. What has anyone achieved in words when he speaks about yet you? And I've practiced this last sentence, so we we'll see how it goes. Yet woe to those who are silent about you, because though loquacious with verbiosity, they have nothing to say. And we find in Augustine this similar drive, like Paul, to praise God. Not because God has fixed something, but because Augustine has caught a glimpse of the true, core, proper nature of God. And he just uses every word at his disposal to try and recount that. And even at the end of all his complicated words, he goes, You know, God, I haven't done anything more or less um, with that. Because you are still good and great. Now, the thing is that part of God's holiness is an ethical dimension. He has a goodness about him. And I want you to listen to this unpacking of God's goodness in Job. Um, If you've got a Bible, turn to Job chapter 34. Because this is where it starts to get uncomfortable. This is where we start to discover perhaps why we don't get as excited about God as Paul and Augustine. And it says this in uh, Job chapter 34, verse 10. So listen to me, you men and women of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. If you have understanding hear this, listen to what I say. Can someone who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and mighty one? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked, who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? They die in an instant in the middle of the night. People are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. His eyes are on the ways of mortals. He sees their every step. There is no deep shadow, no utter darkness, where evildoers can hide. And we have this unpacking um, in the book of Job of holiness to goodness, and from goodness to morality and ethics and behaviour. When we encounter God as he is, not as we imagine, we become very well aware that we are inadequate. We come before this perfect, great, powerful, supreme, beautiful, holy sweetness. And we discover that there's all sorts of things about our lives that contradict him. In the light of his standards, we realize that our daily behavior falls short of his perfection. It should be easy to be good on a Sunday morning. We should make it easy to be a good Christian when you are here in this place. But when you go beyond these walls and you meet unhelpful people, because obviously there's none in here, but out there, there are people that sometimes make life a little harder. And when we are uh, invited to participate in particular activities, we fall short of God's goodness. We fall short of his greatness we fall short of his perfection and this logical argument this unpacking of God's holiness means that without exception every single person in this room cannot stand before God with a clean heart because none of us have it none of us have lived perfectly none of us have lived well Each of us, unfortunately, can only expect God's judgment and wrath because he is holy and perfect and he cannot abide in perfection. He is utterly and perfectly pure and he cannot tolerate stuff that is not the same as him. And as we move on, and as you get older in life, you'll know this, we realise we can't do anything to fix ourselves. We try really hard. And there are an umpteen programmes out there to try. And oh, if you just follow this discipline, you will make yourself better. Follow this health help, advice, follow this book's guidance, and somehow you will make yourself right. But as we get older, we realise we're stuffed in that department. That even with the greatest will in the world... We let loose a sharp word. We do something selfishly. We somehow undo any amount of good living that we've done. I really hope you followed this uh, argument and train of thought up to this point. Because this is the root of Christianity. This is the middle. If you haven't understood everything up to then, you are going to have problems from here on in. There is no good news, there is no gospel, there is no uh, uh, reason to get excited on a Sunday morning if God is not holy and we do not understand we are fallen. There is nothing, nowhere to go. You can go out from church and dismiss it all because um, you're not there. But once you have seen the supremacy and goodness and holiness of God, once you have seen your position towards him as inadequate and falling short, you can then enjoy the sweetest, most uh, gracious gospel you will ever encounter. Every world religion talks about overcoming problems so you can reach out to God, that you just need to try harder. And unfortunately, some Christians bring it in to the church as well. You know, you just have to be good. You just have to be well behaved. You just have to watch what you speak and what you do. But the Bible does not say that. And that is why I chose one of the songs that says, I'm going to let go of my religion. Because this faith that we have is not about achieving stuff. It is not about working towards something. It is about something very different, indeed. So, it may seem a very long time ago, but this time last year, we began our trek through the first letter of Peter. This Uh, guy who was probably Jesus's most charismatic disciple. He's the one that uh, said inappropriate things, and he's also the one that did extraordinary things that the other disciples were a little hesitant about. And this is the letter that we're going through, and and that have been going through up to this point. Um, And in 2019, we explored some things about God's personhood, we explored some things about our own identity, and we also explored some Uh, guidance and directions about how we should behave, what we should do in particular circumstances. Today, we look at one verse. It is at the very centre and the very kernel of Christianity. If you can read this verse and you can put your hand up and go, I understand that and I believe that, you're in. If you read this verse and go, I'm not sure what is going on there, then you need to look further. And coincidentally, we have uh, an alpha course which is perfect for you. This verse is critical to your place in your faith, your place before God, and your uh, status of salvation. This verse distinguishes us from Muslim, Jew, Sikh, Hindu. It distinguishes us... From all the other religions turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 it says this 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 for Christ suffered once for sins the unrighteous for the un, for the righteous for the unrighteous that is Him for us, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. If you understand what that means for you, you are in a good place. If it is foreign and wordy and an unhelpfully long sentence, then let's unpack it a little more. If God is holy, And we are not. Then we have a chasm. That we can't fix. We can't go over. We cannot have fellowship with God. Because he is pure light. And we have some darkness in us. And so what God did. He sent his one and only son. To live amongst humanity. This guy who... Uh, was born, lived as a baby and as a a child and as a teenager. He grew up to be a man and he lived well amongst the people. He lived not just well, but beautifully. And we have got four Gospels that detail the uh, beauty of his life. Jesus then, despite living so perfectly, died despite having no fault in him. Death is part of uh, the consequences of being selfish and evil and self-occupied and um, it's part of the consequences of living badly. And Jesus didn't deserve that and yet he died nonetheless. In the economy of heaven... The death of God the Son was so costly, so expensive, such a massive deal that it makes amends for everyone else that trusts in him. It is not because your evil is not great, but it's because the death of Jesus is so great that it covers it. It is the death of Jesus that covers anyone's sin that trust in him the his death is such a powerful detergent that it cleans even the darkest of stains this single incredible verse in 1 peter describes what theologians call substitutionary atonement and i haven't put it on the slide because you don't need to remember the phrase but you do need to know that that is the center of things, that Jesus died in our place, and he made amends where we could make no amends. And so what this does, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 verse 18, it means that Christians are the biggest freeloaders on the planet. We are the biggest scroungers there are. Every other religion welcomes you to a place of working hard and achieving holiness. And Christians go, we're having none of that. We're having free grace. We are having something that we don't have to work at, don't have to achieve. We can sit on our couches, scratching our bellies and eating pork scratchings because there's no work to be done. There's nothing to be achieved, nothing to be worked at. This room should not be full of people going, I'm going to try harder and God, Because if you think that, then you have misunderstood the entire of the gospel. It is all about what Jesus has done, not what you have done. If you think that you have impressed God with turning up on a Sunday morning, you have confused Christianity for another religion. If you think that putting money in the back is somehow uh, impressive to God, if you think singing songs or obeying the rules of the road or paying your taxes is somehow... Um, impressing to God and he is drawing you near you have misunderstood the gospel the gospel is entirely that we are a bunch of freeloaders how have ridden into heaven on Jesus's coattails and we have deserved none of it if you can understand that you are a Christian if you do not understand that and if that's not how you live your life you are not If you understand it, then that changes everything. For a start, when you say, you know what, Jesus, I believe you died for me, it brings salvation. These temporal bodies, which some of us feel are wearing out quicker than others, we know that in eternity we have got a safe place. It brings hope for the future, that this life is not all there is it ushers in the Holy Spirit in our lives. Suddenly, being good is not just trying harder, but it's listening to God's Spirit in us. And when we call Jesus Lord and Saviour, we are made part of the church. You may think uh, sitting here means you are part of the church, and anyone that couldn't get up this morning, they are outside the church. That is not true. The church is a place where all those that are saved take up their membership. It is not about bums on seats. It is not about filling buildings. It is about calling Jesus Lord and Saviour. Now we've covered most of these things already in the book of Peter. Peter's wise words has excited us to look at these different things again and again. This morning I want two things That's my ambition for this morning and for the year ahead, is two things. The first is, the price of your sin has been paid once and for all. All the sin that you've done historically, all the sin that you've managed to achieve today, well done, and all the sin that you are are going to do in the future that you're going to feel guilty about and everything else – All of that has been paid for by the death of Jesus. Not because your sin is not really really dark and horrible, but because the death of God was so supreme. And so I want you to relax. I want you to look ahead in the year and just... Give up any hope that your religious activity will somehow gain God's attention and that he will do more for you um, than before. I want you to give up the idea that turning up, setting up, somehow makes you closer to God and more worthy of his attention. I want you to give up the idea that... um, Going to home group, going to prayer meetings, singing Jesus songs, reading the Bible, helps you get God's attention. Because that is wrong. That is something very foreign to scripture and foreign to Christians for 2,000 years. I want you to relax. You are saved and nothing can change that. Jesus has died for you, your sins have been washed away and even the ones you haven't even imagined of yet have been dealt with. And so everything you do this year, I want you to be relaxed and happy about it. If we only see you once a month, that does not mean you are not saved. If we only see you in 2021, that does not mean you are not saved. Because Jesus died for you and that's what makes the difference. And so when you do decide to come, when you do decide to come on a Sunday morning, when you do decide to sing songs, when you do decide to help us in different events, it's not Kevin owes me one, or God owes me one, or I hope I get a pay rise because of all this activity. You do it out of joy and out of the fact you are a freeloading Christian who are riding into the uh, heaven on uh, Jesus' coattails. It's all Been dealt with. Now, I understand that Christians can get grumpy and moody, and um, I'm certainly no exception, but nevertheless, the motivation for everything we do is not, oh, I want God to like me, or I want God to save me, or I hope He'll approve, because all that has been dealt with on the cross. And if you know that, then that should free you up. Suddenly, you should feel a little bit easier. Suddenly you should feel a bit light-hearted. Suddenly the burden that was on your back that every religion would load you down with and that Jesus cursed the Pharisees for. Suddenly go, oh, I don't feel that. I am saved. And nothing can change that. And there is a beauty and joy and light-heartedness that I want for every single one of you for this morning and for the rest of your lives. Christianity is all about freeloading and nothing else. And secondly, secondly, Jesus died, Peter says, to bring us to God. Jesus died to bridge the gap that we could never cross. Jesus died to clean us and make us holy in a way that we could never do ourselves. And suddenly, we dirty, mucky, grimy, selfish, self-centred, easily distracted people can come into God's presence uninhibited, unfettered, unfiltered, and enjoy God's character. Paul did it with his doxology. Augustine did it with the beginning of his confessions book. And this morning, I want us uh, to come into God's presence with that sense of unfettered joy that we can run into his presence and enjoy him, not because he fixed that problem last week, not because he might fix a problem next week, but because of his character an essence which is beautiful to behold excellent it's not quite 12 we had a request to end with a song and coincidentally that works really well with the end of my sermon so if you all stand and we're going to put something on